Welcome to Mayo Clinic Talks Podcast. I'm Dr. Jamie Newman, a hospitalist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and this is the first episode of a special three-part series on troponins. Today we're going to talk about the new fifth-generation high-sensitivity assay for troponins and how it differs from the fourth-generation assay. Physicians looking to claim CME credit for listening to the series can go to ce.mayo.edu slash Troponin PC and register. With me today is Dr. Alan Jaffe. Dr. Jaffe is a cardiologist working with patients with acute ischemic heart disease and also serves as a consultant in laboratory medicine and pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Welcome, Dr. Jaffe. So, Dr. Jaffe, how does the fifth generation assay differ from the fourth generation assay in troponins? Well, mostly it differs in terms of sensitivity. The prior assay was relatively insensitive. For example, it failed to detect values in normal subjects, in almost any normal subject, whereas the new assay detects values in nearly 50% of normal subjects. From the point of view of numbers, if one extrapolates a value of 30 with the new assay uh, is what was detected with the prior assay, and the, the new assay per FDA can report down to six. So that's a five-fold increase in sensitivity. Well, that's really a, a impressive change. So how do you convert values for people who are not familiar with the new assay in their minds from a fourth-generation value to a fifth-generation? What are the equivalencies? Well, above point one, all one needs to do is multiply by 1,000 to change nanograms per ml to nanograms per liter. Below that, however, the assays are not well harmonized. And it's important to know these values because prior data in patients with acute coronary syndrome suggests if you have values above the standard upper limits of normal, those patients benefit from an early invasive strategy. So point one with the old assay, which was the 99th percentile, is equivalent to 30 nanograms per liter with the new assay, and 0.03 nanograms per ml with the prior assay converts to 52 nanograms per liter with the new assay. So a point one would be 100, a point two would be 200. That's, a, That's correct. Even I can do that math. All right. So why are we switching to the new assay to begin with? Well, there are a variety of benefits to the new assay that we'll talk about, I think, a little bit more later. It'll certainly allow for more rapid triage of patients with possible acute coronary syndromes and myocardial infarction in the emergency room. It will also increase the security of both the rule-outs and the rule-ins. And in addition, there are a panoply of new chronic risk stratification algorithms that will help patients who have potential cardiovascular disease. So is this something that everyone in the country is going to be using, or is it only going to be used in, in several centers? Well, not right away. The, the high-sensitivity troponin T assay is the first one approved in the United States, and I suspect that all uh, hospitals will not switch immediately. But the reality is that there are three or four additional high-sensitivity assays that are in front of the FDA now. They rate to be approved shortly. I don't know what shortly is, and I hate to predict anything about politics nowadays, but I would suspect that by, the, by 2019 that most of the assays in the United States probably will be high-sensitivity. 
So even if they're not using that, the assay right away, they will expect some form of high sensitivity assay. To be it may be a different used. assay, but the principles will be similar. Okay. Um, and we're talking about high sensitivity. What, what are the implications of high sensitivity in an assay? Well, it means that we start to detect values depending upon the sensitivity assay in a large number of people. With the very, very high sensitivity assays, everyone has a value. The high sensitivity troponin T assay detects a few values a little bit less than that, uh, and some of the other assays more. Nonetheless, we now know that if one has cardiovascular comorbidities, they tend to cause a rise in the values even within the normal range, and that's why it's so valuable for risk stratification. But it also allows very sensitive evaluation of these patients with possible acute coronary syndromes. When we talk about cutoff values and what's normal and what's elevated as opposed to negative and positive, uh, 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 are there differences between men and women? In their values? In, in lots of different areas, including troponin. Uh, men have higher values of cardiac troponin in every study with every high sensitivity assay that's been uh, tested. <clears throat> this wasn't apparent with prior assays because they weren't nearly sensitive enough to detect larger numbers of women. So one of the biggest benefits of these new assays is going to be for the health of our female population. Is there any uh, theory-wide difference? Well, no one knows for sure. People have argued that, um, that it's simply a matter of size. I'm not sure I agree with that at all. Uh, and there's some controversy. Part of that controversy has to do with how you define normal. Mm -hmm. As you know, in the New England Journal paper that basically suggests that a normal is someone who's inadequately studied. So we have some controversy in the literature, one about how to define normals and how aggressive one ought to be. And the more aggressive we are, the lower the normal values become. And in addition, there's some clinical studies that have been done with some mixed results for this particular assay, troponin T, which I think have really not tried to tease out the differences between men and women which I suspect are there, but have been overwhelmed by the large numbers in the study, because I think th those that fit in this range between the male and female cutoff are a relatively modest slice. Uh, so those are at the lower limits. So when you get to higher levels, that difference disappears? At, at high levels, it's probably not of clinical significance okay. any longer. That's important. Um, so when you have a more sensitive test, you're going to get more elevations. So what, what factors are going to give you more elevated values that aren't related necessarily to coronary artery disease? Well, it's one of the benefits of the assay is that we're starting to detect the fact that there are a large number of clinical circumstances in which the heart is involved where we didn't need, used to know that. So, for example, patients who are septic often have elevations. Many critically ill patients will have elevations, even in the absence of having an acute coronary syndrome. Myocarditis will now be better detected. So there are going to be a lot more elevations, and indeed, assuming we have triaged those with unstable angina adequately, the ACS population may not go up very much. The elevations that we detect rate to be in those individuals who have either cardiovascular disease, 
heart failure arrhythmias, or have a non-primary cardiovascular diagnosis, pneumonia, acute respiratory failure, GI bleeding. When you have an elevated troponin, however, those patients are at accentuated risk. And I don't think this is rocket science. I think it really is if you're sick and you have your heart involved, you're much worse off than if you're sick and your heart isn't involved. That's interesting. So are there any, uh, like some lab tests you'll see uh, factors that give you false elevations or false negatives? Are there any reasons that you might see a, a troponin value that's not an accurate representation of the patient? All lab tests have false positives and false negatives. The uh, troponin T assay is actually pretty good when it comes to false positives. There are a very, very small number of cross-reacting antibodies called heterophilic antibodies that can cause elevations. They're quite rare. The, probably the more common false positive is in patients who have severe chronic skeletal muscle disease. And in occasion, those patients can have an elevation. False negatives, on the other hand, happen a little more frequently. They can happen with hemolysis. And as you know, Jamie, being a hospitalist in most of our institutions, a large percentage of the samples that are collected from intensive care units are done through lines. It's a good way to have hemolysis occur. The other possibility is uh, something called biotin, which is a water-soluble vitamin that's become the, the cause celeb of late for women with hair and nails and men who are interested in building up their bodies, uh, and which turns out to lower troponin values, including cardiac troponin T high sensitivity values. I did see somewhere that there's a group of uh, patients with multiple sclerosis that are being treated with extremely high dose of B7 or biotin. And so that would really, that would be the, I guess, the group I'd be most concerned because they're taking these enormous doses. We did, we, we did observe that. There was a, a manuscript that was published <clears throat> some time ago uh, suggesting that ra patients with rapidly progressive multiple sclerosis that perhaps uh, high doses may be of value. And talking to our own neurologists and here, they're not yet convinced, and they are very sensitized to the fact that for patients who have, who are on high doses of biotin, that they need to be careful about all immunoassay results, not just high sensitivity troponin. So it would affect other assays too. It, it affects uh, all assays, but at varying at varying levels. And so early on, when we detected this, we immediately reached out to those groups where this might be particularly relevant, such as the renal failure patients, because biotin is cleared renally, and our uh, colleagues in neurology. Oh, that's super interesting. What if you mentioned <clears throat> renal failure? What about patients on dialysis? We always worry about that in troponins in the fourth generation. What about fifth generation assay? Well, with the fifth-generation assay, almost everybody on dialysis will have a minor elevation. Uh, it's going to be extremely common. It depends on the study you look at, whether or not you want to parse 95% or 100%. And the values are usually pretty high. They usually peak at around 100. There's an occasional patient who will have a value that is over 100, but that patient's pretty rare. Oh, that's great to know. Uh, do you think uh, using this assay is going to improve clinical practice? I don't think there's any doubt about it. Uh, we're going to embrace a two-hour rule-out strategy here. It works quite well. One needs to be careful in patients who present early after the onset of symptoms. 
and one needs to be careful if for whatever reason any lab test, including troponin, doesn't square with the clinical presentation of the patient. But other than that, it's going to allow us to send home a larger number of patients because the rule out is secure. It's going to facilitate the earlier identification of patients who really need to be in the hospital. The downside if there is one, is going to be that there are going to be more elevations and clinicians are going to worry that perhaps some of those could be ACS that they're missing. And in point of fact, if you don't have your clinical hat on and you're not really scrutinizing patients, you could miss those. Most of them, however, ought to be pretty easy to detect if one is in their thinking clinically. Yeah, if you look at the diagnosis of uh, marker infarction, it's not just the blood test, it's the clinical scenario, the EKG, and we certainly don't want to be have our decision-making process run by a lab test result without thinking of the patient. Absolutely themselves. not. What about the impact on understanding patient risk? As I, as I indicated earlier, although we all have a normal range, individuals, as we develop comorbidities, even within that normal range, or the values tend to go up. So if you look even within the normal range and you say, who's at risk, for example, to develop heart failure, as one example, the higher your troponin, the more likely you are to develop heart failure, even if it's normal. And you can augment that still further by getting a subsequent value. And if the value is rising, you again augment that probability. And there's a, a very robust data that suggests that we ought to be able to deploy this to detect such patients. And the important thing even that is more important than the detection is that there are several trials that have now gone on, including things like Pontiac and STOP-HF, which suggest that if we identify such patients, we can actually reverse that process and keep those patients from developing, say, heart failure. Same thing can apply to things like acute myocardial infarction if you have an ischemic heart disease substrate, and to a lesser extent, but coming, things like sleep-disturbed breathing, left ventricular hypertrophy, et cetera. Uh, identifying those patients in advance when, when preventing disease would obviously be a great value. I guess the last thing I'd like to understand is in troponins, currently we draw values at zero and three and six hours, and we're always concerned about the change. How, in, in the new assay, how are we going to define the changing pattern of values and time frame? It's a very important issue because the reality is that there are going to be a, a, a great increase in the number of individuals who have elevated values. And that can be due to just something like structural heart disease, heart failure, for example, left ventricular hypertrophy. So if one views them all as some sort of an acute syndrome, we're going to end up misdiagnosing large numbers of patients. So looking for a change where there is a change from one value to the other and defining that change, and I'll talk about how to do that in just a moment, is critically important to distinguish between those who have an acute myocardial injury and those who have more chronic, often structural heart disease. A subset of those that are acute or acute myocardial infarctions, because that's what acute myocardial infarctions does. So <clears throat> it's terribly important to recognize that. The one exception to point out for our listeners is that if you present late after the onset of a heart attack, 
and you're on the downslope of the time concentration curve, it moves much more slowly than the upstroke does. And the consequence is you may not see a changing pattern as quickly. You'll see it, but it takes longer. In the emergency room, what we're implementing are relatively small differences. And there's a controversy over how small those differences can be. The European Society of Cardiology has an algorithm that proposes a one-hour change. And I think, if one looks at the assay characteristics, that the assay is incapable of making the small distinctions that are involved, three and five. And there also are spontaneous changes in all of us in response to physiological stress that can cause minor increases. So we've selected here to take deltas that are further apart and a two-hour strategy so that we are not going to be confounded by any of this. It'll give us a little bit more uh, of a larger group in the intermediate range, but in monitoring this, as you know, in a clinical pilot that we did, it's about 20% whereas 80% of patients really were triaged in our institution within two hours. In our uh, next uh, podcast, we're going to talk at length about the impact in the emergency department, but it is nice to know that we'll be able to have a, a second value of two hours as opposed to three, and I think that'll make a decision-making quicker for patients and for staff. Anything else you want to add right now for our listeners? Well, I think cardiologists are concerned about this approach because of the fact that there are going to be so many more elevations and the question is how are those patients going to be sorted in the european experience and the asian experience as well this has worked extremely well when education is good and that's one of the important reasons to do podcasts like this when education isn't very good and people are sort of, if you'll pardon the term, flying by the seat of their pants and not keeping their clinical hats on, then there have been a lots of there have been lots of problems. I think we ought to try to avoid that, and the way to avoid it was a better education. That's excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today for our first episode on Talking Troponins. Remember, Providers looking to claim CME credit for listening to this three-part series can go to ce.mayo.edu slash troponinpc and register. For more podcasts like this one, go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to Mayo Clinic Talks podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Jamie Newman.